Welcome back to The Doctor Is In. This week's episode is the second half of our interview with Chris Higgins for our first installment of What Plants Crave from Technology. Thank you for listening, and as always, thank you for growing with us. Okay, so a few things. One, to answer your question, uh, the tomato greenhouse that I may have visited in 2010, how it has changed to today is uh, it's now a cannabis greenhouse. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good answer. (laughs) That's a good answer. Uh, Number two, one of the things that I learned from you early uh, on is that you told me one time, you know, uh, one of the first questions that I ask a potential new customer or client, if you're, if you're uh, consulting is who's the grower, is there a grower? And then if they say, Oh, we don't have one yet, or that'll be easy. We'll figure that out later. You just kind of like, okay, call me back when you have that person. Right. It's, yeah. Or, or, or you, you tread lightly right? Yeah. Until you know they have that person. And and that was one of the first questions I learned to ask potential new clients. And certainly, you know, there have been many projects um, that we actually didn't pursue, right? And we said, hey, you know, I really think that you need a grower, you know, to help you make these decisions. Or if they had a grow consultant, it's like, okay, well, that's something, but probably what's going to happen, right, is you're going to have this grow consultant and this is the way that they grew. And then you're going to finally hire that full-time grower and they grow a totally different way and they weren't there helping make decisions. And everything is just going to be upended, all the decisions you made, right, because they're going to change everything. And so even that we we are, are cautious about. And uh, it, it really has surprised me it hasn't been a lot of people, but enough people to surprise me that say that's, that's going to be easy. And it's like, that's going to be the hardest thing that you have to do um, in this endeavor. I mean, do you come across people that, that make sort of that flippant comment? Uh, Well, you know, not as much in the last couple of years as I I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Much less, but, but it's still there. And, and usually my experience on the food side is it's usually starting with somebody who's enamored by the romanticism of farming, right? Mm-hmm. There's still some of that. Farming can be romantic until you farm, right? <laughs> and then, and then it's, it's really hard work. <laughs> yeah, then it's really hard work. You don't get any vacation. Uh, and, and I think for me, that's what I've noticed is that that is kind of gone away. I think on the food side, where I think we're changing faster maybe than in the cannabis side because the margin dollars are so much smaller, right? That you know, these guys are like, whoa, this was a little bit harder than I thought it was. Um, and I and I think that for that reason, they've learned to bring a grower to the table um, pretty quickly. And, and I would say this, that there's a lot of people out there right now that are a bit down on vertical farms. And I understand why they're saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same point in time, I work with a lot of vertical farms that have been successful. Yeah. And the one thing they all have in common is that they stayed small because they knew they were servicing a niche market. And the other thing was that the owner was the grower and he usually had angel investment money. It was either his money or it was friends and family and they had to make it work. Right. Yep. And so, but I would, I could always tell how well the guy knew his farm when I was talking to him because the guys who were successful knew how everything was plumbed. If there was a problem, they knew exactly where to go to fix it. And, and I get that when I'm even dealing with the big farmers who have hired a production manager, a grow, a head grower, or an operations manager. Um, I was in Mexico with the general manager of a very large farm in Mexico. And he was telling me that some glass broke in one of their walkways in between the greenhouses. And he said he walked by it for like three or four days. And he was having an argument between the maintenance team and the growers, like somebody's got to fix that. And the two teams, nobody would fix it. Now, this is when I know a good GM because this GM went, got the keys to the forklift, picked up the pallet of glass, drove it over there, raised it up to the top 
and stood there and waited for somebody to do it. And, and he's like, if you guys don't do it, I'm going to do it because that GM had grown up in the industry and knew how to change glass. Right. Wow. And he's managing a couple of thousand people at this point in time. But the reality is, is he, when he's making a business decision, he knows down to how much fertilizer he's going to use, why he's making that, that business decision. And I think bringing as those people, as the young people in the industry today gain that skill, I've known that general manager since early 2000s. So he's got 20 years in, as they get that experience and that skill, we will see more farms succeed, but it comes with time, right? It, it comes with time. And and that's the one thing we can't, we have not been able to buy in our industry is growers with experience. We didn't have yeah. enough of them. We're starting to get more growers educated and trained. And now we go back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, which is they've got enough, get enough crop cycles under their belt. They got to see these problems a few times before they really learn how to control them. And there's a lot of problems they need to see, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's get not through all the seasons, one problem. Even. Yeah. yeah diseases, just the variability. Insects, yeah. Uh, morphology, uh, markets, markets. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you you name it. They need to see them to know how to respond. Maybe a pandemic or two. I mean, <laughs> you throw that we'll in ready there. The next one. I know. Um, I mean, what you're saying is one of the reasons why I fell in love with agriculture and farming in the first place um, is, you know, when I worked on that that mushroom farm up in Idaho, the the farmer, I mean, he he literally did everything. He was the plumber. He was the contractor. He was, you know, he was replacing the shade screens. He was fixing the motors on the fans. I mean, he was the mechanic, the electrician, the plumber, the grower, the sweeper, right? I mean, he literally doing everything. And I had, I just had so much respect for this human being who was able to just cobble anything together to make it work till the next day right? Or until that part came, right? Like just, I mean, when we talk about Band-Aid approach, Band-Aids are supposed to be a Band-Aid, yeah. right? They're supposed to be until something heals or, so, you know, that that part comes in and you can like fix it for real. But I feel like there's so many Band-Aid approaches that, you know, we talk, we kind of joke, I don't know if you do, but I do a lot in what I do is, you know, Band-Aid on top of Band-Aid on top of Band-Aid on top of Band-Aid until, you know, you don't even know where like the skin is anymore. Yeah. Um, and you know, these band-aids become a permanent, uh, solution as opposed to a temporary solution. But I, I guess I, I digress. <laughs> Would you say that, um, I mean, in this idea of, you know, farming being romanticized, you know, I think one of these sort of admirable things that vertical farming has brought out in in tech driven people um, or people with technical degrees or technical backgrounds or interests is that they find, you know, oh, there's something that I can apply, right, my skills and and um, interests in that could actually, you know, benefit humanity. It's not just an an app on the phone, you know, like some little game, you know, making people mindless. This is actually something that could feed people. How much do you think that has sort of driven the direction of the industry? Uh, just, and, and I don't know, just, I guess, what are your thoughts in general about that? I mean, can those technicians, I guess they're not technicians, technologists um, become farmers, like farmers sort of become technologists? I don't know. I don't, I, I guess the way I'd answer that question is I don't know if they need to. Right? Okay. Um, I'm going to, a little bit of Dutch greenhouse history. And if you look back at their, if you study a little bit of the Dutch greenhouse history, you look back where a lot of the supporting companies came from and they came from the greenhouses, right? They, they, so like, if you look at most, you start talking to the guys who started Oh, some of the irrigation companies, um, some like that, even how Grodan got founded, you know, how they figured out Grodan worked in the, in the, in the greenhouse space. And you start looking at what happened was there was an innovative member of the farming family who figured out that that person wanted to make products for the farm and they went and started their own business. Yeah. So they, you, you hear the Dutch say they had a green thumb and that's what I think they refer to is the fact that they started off in the farm. They didn't really want to farm, but 
their experiences allowed them to solve problems that the farmers were dealing with. And I think what the great part about this interest in our industry with technologists has been is if they're paying attention and they're listening, they're going to learn what problems really need to be solved. These first round of problems that they're solving may or may not be the right problems to solve. That's not for me to decide. That's for their, their inventions to decide, right? But as, as they get more experience, as they have some failures, as they really learn what commercial farming means, because that's the other part we have to be careful about. Some of these new farms are only farming a few thousand square feet. That's not really farming. That's like intensive gardening, mm. right? So as you start to farm larger and larger plots of land or more and more production area, you're going to start to see what is really required. And there are going to be some technologists that come through with some major breakthroughs. I, I know it. Um, I do think some of these AIs that help grow, you know, that help growers learn how to manage the environment better. I think that's going to be a huge breakthrough when it happens. I, I think robotics and labor assist is going to be a huge breakthrough as we go through some of the changes in population management that we're going through. And if we continue to have problems, I don't mean it this way. If we continue to have problems getting the good labor across the border, <laughs> I want to be careful about how I say that, right? Yeah. If, if we continue to change the people that are working on the farm, the reliance on robotics that provide labor assistance is going to become higher. And so we're going to figure out these tools that are needed to keep our productivity high and to keep our farm workers employed and happy and coming back. And so I do think we're going to get there. And I do think that some of these technologists are going to be successful. And I understand why they were drawn to our industry because there is something about this. I've talked to so many guys that have struggled, but they're like, I can't understand, struggled financially to make it work in our industry. And they keep, they're like, I don't understand why I keep coming back, right? When this is always a beer conversation. Like, I don't know why I can't leave and go do something else. I was either really successful before this, or I've had other job offers, but I just keep coming back. It's like, I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> but I think it goes back to, in general, what you said is it's hard to find fault with growing food. It's hard to find fault with growing ornamental plants, Right you know, oh, what do you do? I make your yard look be more beautiful. Yeah. That sounds like a pretty admirable position, right? Yeah. Oh, what do you do? I help people improve their diets. Oh, that's again, a fairly admirable position. Um, so it's easy to understand that side, why they start off being interested. And then I, again, I mean, you and I go to the same events. We go to the same shows. We have the same friends, right? A lot of us have become friends. It's really difficult to leave that peer network True that you that. trust and enjoy being around. I mean, you left the industry and came back. Yep, yep. <laughs> we, pulled you, we pulled you back in. <laughs> you willingly. Know, willingly, yeah. And so it's one of those things where I think the tech was something, and I can speak for myself in saying this, I never wanted to go back to my grandparents' farm and work. I would have never considered that as a career option. I never really wanted to work with my brother on the greenhouse. But when I started to see this path forward where there was this technology play, not because I was interested in tech so, so much, but I was looking at this way that everything I found so scary about farming as an industry or as a business, here was a way where I was believing that there are ways to de-risk that entire venture. Right. I know when I first started Hort Americas, one of the things that I thought I was going to be able to do for sure, and this is definitely I was wrong on this one. I thought for sure I was going to make it possible for family farms to be profitable again. That was like one of my initial mission statement lines. And then the reality is what happens all of a sudden we got all this big capital coming into the space. Like yeah. I was so far off on that. <laughs> <laughs> um but that was, you know, th those were the things that kind of brought me in. And, you know, um, I think my wife would agree. This has provided us an excellent lifestyle for almost 25 years. Hard work. But anytime you're in an area where, you know, where you're working on a relatively high volume, low margin product, and you're part of that supply chain, it's going to be hard work. I, I don't care what, what business you're in. It's going to be hard work. I, I mean, read an article on the no. Packer on Sunday that said, 
for every dollar of produce at the retail aisle, only 14 and a half cents stays with the farmer. 85% of that dollar is with the retailer or the broker, right? And when only 14 and a half cents of that dollar stays with the farmer and we're trying to push tech through that farmer, right? To sell food, really how much can that farmer afford to invest in? Wow. Um, that's a depressing thought. I knew the number was low, but I'm not sure I realized it was that low. Um, what, what technology or technologies, um, do you think needs the biggest breakthrough or would have the biggest impact and maybe it's split into greenhouse and and indoor vertical farming or maybe not so i think the first one it doesn't matter what part of cea we're talking about i think that and i think this has historically always been accurate i think the biggest breakthroughs we need is in some new varieties mm-hmm. um and so i'm going to use the term seed um as being seed technologies where i think we need to have the biggest breakthroughs um and that could all, you know, and we're starting to see some of these um, varieties hit the market right now. But, you know, uh, resistant uh, varieties to tomato brown rugos as being an example of something that is needed to help these farmers be pro- profitable again. All the way through, we are currently working off genetics that have, and there are new varieties coming out all the time, right? So, I hope no seed companies listen to me and saying, yeah, but we have this. That's not the point of me saying that. <laughs> we have been working with varieties that were bred for a certain type of climate, right? So when we talk about lettuce, we were breeding those varieties for high light, warm day, cool night environments, coast of California, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Winters in Yuma. If we start looking at, and and as we start to get more acreage of production in the greenhouse or vertical farm, it causes the seed companies to want to invest to provide us varieties that perform better in the vertical farm or in the greenhouse. And I think ultimately that holds the key to a lot of our success, but that's been the same way through the course of agriculture, right? Through the history of agriculture, the varieties that we sold a hundred or 50 years ago look nothing like they do today because the farms are not in the same locations. And we've bred, we've had selective breeding uh, uh, programs that allowed us to enhance crop performance for the environmental conditions that we're growing in. And we just need more time in the CEA space to catch up. Um, that, being, uh, I, that for me being the number one tech. Uh, so I, I, I want to say something about that because you know, for, um, in cannabis, I mean, there are many conversations everywhere about genetics and um, strains, right? What they would call strains, we would call seeds usually. And I, you know, I mean, growers are crossbreeding all the time, trying to create, you know, different qualities and yields and, and, and the direction that I have been excited about in that industry when a when a client tells me that they are breeding new strains, cultivars, whatever varietals, whatever you want to call them, they're they're breeding new strains um, to meet their specific needs, right? Because they're in Texas or they're in Florida or they're in Massachusetts or Maine and these really weird climates that don't fit well from, like you said, tomatoes. Cannabis was, of course, you know, a lot of those genetics were were bred um, here in Humboldt in Northern California, very different climate um, than the ones I just mentioned. And so when clients say, yeah, we're we're looking for new genetics or breeding for new genetics that can fit this climate, fit what we're doing here, I get so excited because you're not just trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. You're trying to find the right round peg to fit into that hole. Um, and what I also find that's really interesting, you know, I, I know we mostly are talking about, about veggies, but in kind of a parallel, I mean, again, I feel like we, we hear a lot more about genetics and breeding on the cannabis side. And even at the grower level, why don't we hear it as much in vegetable production? 
Well, I think it's just a very different part of our industry. I think the the companies that, I mean, in my network, I hear quite a bit about it. Um, but my network is probably much closer to field production where I get mm. a lot more. It's, it's a volume game. So let me say it this way. It is a volume game. In order for the seed companies to invest the money. So now I'm talking volume and maturity of industry, right? So the seed companies are extremely large on the vegetable side. So in order for those seed companies to invest the money, they need to have a market to sell it to and a path to a return on investment. So they're watching the industry and they say, okay, well, you only have X amount of acres uh, and your, your seed consumption is X amount of pounds per acre per year. I don't know if that's going to work. But as the industry gets bigger and there's a more and there's more farmers using potential farmers as customers using their seeds, you're going to see more and more development. Now, in my opinion, you shift over towards the cannabis industry and you still have an industry that let's call it legally commercially is relatively young, right? You're, you're talking what, 20, 25 years. And you have one that's been segmented by state, very difficult to do business interstate or inner country where on the veggie side, you know, there's three or five companies that control 90% of the seeds around the world. Right. So mm you get, you've got a lot, lot more maturity in the market. And, and, and on the cannabis side, I think it's still more of a small market where everybody's kind of doing their own thing. Nobody's been able to scale up, whether it's because of mainly because of legal or legislative issues, they haven't been able to scale up and take these things globally and cause that sort of uh, uh, um, uh, consolidation with the industry, within the industry. Right now, it's still a very segmented industry. Uh, and I think that's been cannabis in general. Same thing on the floriculture side. Mm. Right? We, we've already seen on the floriculture side, we've already seen the scale up. We've gone through a decade of consolidation. And now we have the really big, we have the really small, and we don't have a lot of guys in between. And veggies, same thing. Really big, really small, not a lot of guys in between. Cannabis, on the other hand, even the really big aren't that big. It's true. <laughs> right? It's right? true. In comparison to the other types of farms that are out there, they're really big from a production footprint. They're really big, aren't that big. Yeah. So is there a risk? Okay, so so we're advancing seed technology to fit these new climates or these new scenarios where maybe we're growing, you know, in these vertical farms at these light levels and densely packed together. And it's really hard to move air through there and humidity control and all these things that I think about. Is there a risk that as we're developing the techno like lighting technologies and doing research around lighting and around like maybe climate control or irrigation or whatever, and then we have, you know, the the sea technology improving, is there a risk that they're going to be like two ships passing in the night? Like the things that we're trying to develop here on like, I don't know, lighting, mechanical irrigation tech yeah. and seed tech that they're just like all of a sudden they're not going to match? <laughs> um, I don't know if it's, they're not going to match. I, I don't know if certain attributes will be as important. Let's mm, say, okay. you know, I can talk a lot about the lighting side, right? Yeah. And, and I think like if vertical farming ever takes off, we are going to find ourselves using varieties that require light, less light intensity. I hope so. Right. So yeah. there, I don't think there's a way, if we look at what's happening in Europe today with the increased energy costs of today, based on global uh, uh, geopolitical issues today, it tells us that we can't get too dependent on energy to produce food if we are ultimately trying to solve the world's problems of food in 2050, right? Yeah. Those, those things don't go, so we have to find a way to do more with less, right? Less reliant on fossil fuels, less reliant on energy. And now today I talked to you about when I started the company, what I got excited about. Now I start talking about what I get excited about is really that environmental sustainable aspect of farming and how can we do more with less? And so I think today, I was telling a buddy this not too long ago, today it feels like we're at the 1960s, 1970s of the auto industry. All the cars yeah. that are really popular to, you know, in the 60s and 70s, they had really big engines and they went really fast and they were really big. And then comes the 1970s and we have an oil issue, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden we get really successful Japanese car companies that are bringing in smaller cars that are more efficient. 
And gradually, the U.S. car buyer moved towards those smaller, more efficient cars and away from the average car buyer. We still have all the big trucks in Texas. Of so. course. <laughs> <laughs> the, the average car buyer moved away from those, those really big motors and really big cars to something that was more efficient. I kind of think we might go through that hmm. in the in the auto, and I, I think we might go through that in the indoor farming industry as well. Right now, and I'm I'm lumping cannabis in this. Every cannabis grower that I talk to, every vertical farmer I talk to, more power, more power, more power. I want to go faster. I want to push more yield. Yep. I think long term, that's a very difficult thing to maintain, and I think we're going to figure out how to do that more efficiently. So I think it's likely that some of the problems that you and I are trying to solve. When we look at, and you work on HVAC, it's like, I create the heat that you have to remove. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's a good partnership, actually. (laughs) Uh, When we look at it that way, I think what will happen is that I'm hoping that the problems that you and I are trying to solve will actually become a little bit easier and a little Mm. bit more realistic. Because I've been super excited about the LED lighting space in terms of how efficient we've gotten. We don't got a lot of gains to go to. We're start hit, starting to hit some of these theoretical limits, right? Mm-hmm. We, I think we have a lot on the HVAC side as we get the money as an industry to invest in designing HVAC that's plant specific, plant production specific, rather than taking building systems and applying them to a farm. Yep. We actually develop farming systems. So that for me is pretty exciting. Um, but I do, I don't think we're going to be two ships passing in the night. Okay. I think we're going to be, I think the farm, the indoor cannabis farms and, and, and veggie farms of today will be museums by in 10 years. I don't think it'll look anything like it does 10 years from now. Interesting. Do you think there would be a, a retraction yeah, of of these large scale vertical farms, like you said, like you were really excited when you you know were getting started to to helping the small farmer right be profitable and successful, and how wrong you were because all the money went you know big capital went to big farms. Okay, I'm gonna crystal ball you here, like <laughs> from ten years ago to today. I mean, could there be a retraction to smaller farms um, rather these large scale vertical farms or do we still have to keep these large scale vertical farms in order because of economies of scale to be comfortable that is a extremely good question i'm going to answer the question two ways okay the first part is i think the large farm has to exist because of the fact that retailers demand a certain amount of volume and we have fewer and fewer retailers (laughs) out there right there's less Mm. and less grocery store chains that every year, right? This year, Kroger and Albertsons are going to merge if they get approved. You're going to have fewer and fewer options as a farmer to sell to, which are going to require you to be bigger and bigger to sell to more of their stores. The big question then becomes on the food side is what happens with food service? What happens with restaurants? What happens with people that have a more selective menu that they're filling? There's there could be a situation and it's likely and there's going to be cities where this is true and there's going to be cities where this is not true. An example, there's probably going to be a situation where a city like Nashville supports a certain amount of small farms where a city like Kansas City doesn't because it doesn't have the same sort of food scene. It doesn't have the same sort of foodie atmosphere or foodie environment. And, and if you go to Kansas City, and I'm not picking on Kansas City. But family Sounds there, like there's an opportunity in Kansas City. <laughs> yeah, it's an opportunity. But if you go through Kansas City and you drive around, you see a lot more chain restaurants. Same thing for me here in Dallas. You have a lot more chain restaurants where when you go to Nashville, you have a lot more one-off restaurants that are offering a very unique and uh, a very unique food experience. So those people could keep small farms alive. But if we look at the larger farms, they're going to have a play because those those retailers want consistent volume from, you know, from as few sources as they possibly can get. And you need to be able to fill the contracts, right? And you're going to have right. to be of some size and scale to fill those contracts. Now, yes, the second part of that question, which is much more difficult, it depends on how you look at a vertical farm on whether bigger is better. Um, 
bigger is better because it allows you to serve a bigger client. But you are an engineer. I'm not. When you look at us going up in layers or adding more and more light, where did this, where are the scales of efficiency actually come in from a production standpoint, right? Like mm -hmm. the more light we add, the more HVAC we need. Yep. Right. When you look at a greenhouse and you use, again, I'm pick, I'm not picking on the Dutch. I'm just using them as a historical reference. When you look at a greenhouse, the way the Dutch have designed it, they, they build their pack house or their head house in a way where there's a certain amount of equipment that they get as efficient as they possibly can. And let's just start with the boiler system, right? They're going to go out and buy a certain size boiler system that is as big as it can be and as efficient as it can be and is the best thing that they can afford today. Then the greenhouses that they surround it with become relatively inexpensive because there's not a whole lot more equipment inside those greenhouses, right? It's just a glass yeah. structure. And so that's how I kind of look at that. I don't necessarily see that sort same sort of model where you start scaling and you get more efficient in the vertical farm today. Not to say it can be done. I just haven't seen it happen today. I don't know the answer to that question, but I, I feel like, I, I feel like where I go when I think about these large scale vertical farms is that one of the big selling points I feel like we've been hearing for years is the ability to meet local consumer demands or needs, right? To, to meet a certain local market, grow local, right? Yep. Don't, don't rely so much on California for your lettuce. Like we're going to grow it here in New York or, you know, the Northeast or whatever. But as soon as they start getting so big, it seems like they're not serving that local market anymore. And so maybe what I have a hard time with is what, what the boundary is like, what, what are we considering local? Are we just considering it not in California? If we're talking about lettuce, right? Are we talking about it not being Mexico? And you know, if it's tomatoes, um, like what is local? Is it really, should we? And so I, I just feel like there's sort of like this disingenuousness, I guess, um, in those claims. Uh, yeah, I don't, I think there's probably a lot of people that agree with you. I do believe, I don't think the USDA has changed it. I could be wrong, but the USDA had once defined local as 150 miles from source, right? That sounds right. Yep. Uh, and so to me, I've always used that. When somebody asked me the question, what is local? 150 miles from source. <laughs> now, what I have realized, and again, I'm not saying this is good, bad, and I'm not passing judgment. Like in Texas, what is local? Well, the Texas Department of Agriculture tells you what local is because they, if you grow in Texas, they provide you a Texas grown sticker that you can use. And that is mm. local. Now, for anybody who's traveled Texas, 150 miles from my house does not take you across the state of Texas. Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think the same thing would be said if you were a California person buying the California grown brand yeah. and you were living in uh, Sacramento buying product from San Diego. Exactly. That's not going to meet the USDA's guidelines of local. Salinas barely does. Salinas barely does, right? <laughs> and, and so I, I think what we should come to understand is that no matter what part of our life we live in, marketing does control a lot of the perceptions that are out there, right? And this local thing is a marketing term. And mm. I do not like to beat up on farmers or our vertical farmers or, you know, greenhouse growers too much over marketing terms because there's so much other things in our life that are so much more greenwashed than what we're doing. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. It's like, why am I trying to hold my farmer who gets 14 and a half cents of a dollar, right? Why yeah. am I trying to hold him or her to the standard that I'm not holding? Um, I got a Columbia shirt on that I'm not even thinking about holding Columbia to. Yeah, right? sure, sure. Or, you know, I got a Nike hat on. I'm not even thinking about holding Nike to. So I'm trying not to hold the farmer to that standard. And I have come to realize that there are marketing terms. I would love to get to the point in our world where, where we all set very high standards and values that we follow. And I think personally, some of us try to set those standards and try to set those, but we, we also pick and choose when we want them to apply. Yeah, of course right. we do. Yeah. We're and human. So that's just human. <laughs> We're just human. 
and so so when it comes to vertical farming because that was the example you used i think it's just best if we go back to especially for somebody like you and i if we go back to is it a tool that can provide consistently high quality food safely to the consumer at a price point the consumer is willing to pay for and if that is the if that is true then you and i shouldn't you know i'm going to say i don't really care about anything more than that now the the big question is can they do that right it's so early in the industry that they haven't necessarily proven as an industry that they can do that consistently um and so that's why you always hear me using these things as tools, right? Yeah. Right I now. That, that. That, and that's all, that's all they are, are tools to help farm. Yeah. And some farmers can afford nicer tools. And right now we're seeing, you know, if the really nice tools are worth the investment or yeah. should we scale back the type of tools that we're using to farm? Greenhouse floriculture guys do it. Look at cannabis. Um, I'm not nearly as as well versed in cannabis as you are, but my experience in cannabis says that depending on what part of the country you're in, when field or high tunnel cannabis comes into production, it greatly affects the market of the high tech growers, right? The price points and how fast they can yeah, move product. Yeah. So each industry that you and I serve, we all have those same um, barriers that we have to work around or obstacles we have to uh, contend with. I heard, I was at a conference last week in Arizona and uh, a guy named Abe Van Wiggerden, who's the owner of Metroliner Greenhouses, or one of the owners with his brother of Metroliner Greenhouses, said that, you know, they were having a hard time getting into certain garden centers because they were having to compete with bicycles that were purchased and, and delivered late because of the pandemic. Oh and my so God. they had a certain part of their sales avenue where they weren't able to get as many plants in the store, as much live goods in the store, because the garden center was now filled with bikes because they had no place else to put the no bike. No way. And so it just shows you that wow. like, the, the market, you know, as growers, we control certain things. Abe's one of the best, Abe and his family are one of the best ornamental growers in the country, but they can't control that retailer and how they're going to position their products. And that's the same thing we're dealing with all the food production and everything else. The retailers are having an impact on what the consumer sees at that last point of interaction. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, I, I really do appreciate um, you, you referencing CEA and CEA technology as, as a tool to farm because that's how I like to see it too. And, and when we, you know, I, I feel like in CEA we're, we're kind of pushing past um this attitude where vertical farms are competing with greenhouses, right? And we're starting to say, no, we're all in this together, right? Like we all have value. But then still I hear them say, no, we're not in competition with each other. We're in competition with Salinas and Huma and the field farmers. I'm like, oh, you were so close. No, we don't have to be in competition with them either. Why can't we be a tool, provide a tool to help them? Because you know, in California, we are dealing with some issues. We yeah. are not going to be able to grow at the scale that we currently do due to drought and fire and, you know, like just name it, right? Soil. Um, and, and so it's like, why can't we be presenting field farmers with CEA technology as a tool to help them continue farming? Why do we have to necessarily be in competition with them? And so I love that you brought up um, the example of berry growers, you know, using hydroponic technology in the fields of California, right? Like they're using a tool that was developed for CEA to grow better in the field. Thank you. And they, you know, and that applies. It's kind of funny, you know, I've referenced the Dutch so many times today, but if you spend enough time around the Dutch industry, you will find them taking that that toolbox and applying it all over horticulture, all over agriculture. Um, if you look at field farmers in Yuma and you, and you, and you get the, you have the, the pleasure of watching the field farmers in Yuma transplant in late August during the first, when they first start replanting the fields, it's so hot. They transplant at night with lit tractors and mm. an amazing thing to witness. So here we are, we're taking this tool. That's a greenhouse. We didn't put that greenhouse in Yuma, but we had it in California and we transported young plants down 
because we had a semi-automated transplanter that was putting the plants in the ground as early in the season they possibly could overnight. Like right there, you can just get an idea of how CEA impacts even the what we consider to be extremely low-tech agriculture, which would be field farming in Yuma. <clears throat> and that for me is uh, probably the best example of it is a tool, but unfortunately, we'll go back to the marketing comments. So much of what we hear of us versus them is coming from people that are raising capital. And when you're raising capital, it is us versus them because that capital has a choice in terms of what it's going to vet invest into, right? And so what we're seeing now is we're no longer having these farming communities that share a lot of information and make their, you know, make Selena stronger as a whole because there's family involved at multiple different farms or there's neighbors involved in there. They're not giving all their secrets, but they're helping their, their community grow uh, and produce more. Now we add this type of capital to the market that creates this hyper competition that we, that that's just a reality that changes as the way we're going to invest. Because the fact of the matter is, is when you look at vertical farming, there's no, there's no traditional bank that would ever finance a vertical farm. There's nothing there to guarantee the banks can get their money back. Mm -hmm. So if you've got this idea and you want to take this tech that's never been built before or proven before and develop it, you're going to have to take capital that's willing to play at a fairly high risk. And then you're going to have to play the games associated with that capital. And so that's why we're seeing that. Um, I'm glad that we are getting a few more years in the industry and we're starting to see people realize they can't do everything themselves. It's just now starting to happen. You're starting yeah. to see a little bit more sharing. I was I, um, I was on an advisory me meeting for a, U uh, a USD funded herb grant today. And I had three of the bigger CEA herb growers on the call and they were starting to share. Like it was like, okay, starting to hear a little bit of talk about shared problems, starting to hear a little bit of talk about shared references it's still early. It's coming. Um, we just need to be patient with, uh, you know, patient and understand where their money's coming from. Right. Um, I, you know, it was really revealing to me when we were at indoor ag con back in February and, you know, one of the audience members, you know, asked how many here in this room are members of your farm bureau and not a single person raise their hand. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, that that's part of the tension too, right? Is that even the indoor farmers, the greenhouse growers who are also in the room are not part of the general farming community. Either they're not putting themselves there or they don't feel right. Like they're invited to the table. Um, but we're all trying to do the same thing. Um, and we do have 8 billion people now. Yeah. <laughs> so we shouldn't, necessarily have to feel like we're in competition with each other and be sharing more ideas and and elevating right farming as a whole farming and agriculture as a whole regardless of what we're growing right. and the farm bureau i mean as conservative as it is i will say is you know the trade organ is is a trade organization that you know, CEA can tap into um, for for resources and for, I guess, lobbying even for governing relationships and, and shouldn't count them out as, I don't know, as a as a partner, as a supporter. Yeah, I think what you'll find is I, I honestly think you'll start to see people migrate towards the crop, the uh, the associations that identify by crop. Right. So like the Strawberry Growers Association, or I don't know of a Lettuce Growers Association, but on the berries, there's grower associations. You know, there's, um, and when you're in Mexico, you've got multiple tomato grower associations. And when you're down there, you do see the CEA folks with the field folks, right? There's certain problems that are very, very different. But when you're dealing with issues like labor or energy or fuel prices, those are things that we all share in common. It's just to what degree. So you do see it. And I think what we'll see is maybe. Maybe we'll all be challenged in an environment like indoor agcon where our competitors are sitting right there. But if we talk about it from a crop perspective and we take away the business side, I think we might see a little bit more sharing. 
and we take away the tech play. And, you know, I, I think that's where Horde Americas has found much of its success is we really don't try to identify you by your tech. You know, yeah. there's, there's certain crop things that there's certain variables in production that you have to control to manage the crop, right? And to be successful, keep that crop in balance. And, and what we've found is a successful path forward is just talk about those variables. We don't really care about how you irrigate. We don't care about some of these other things. But what we want to try to do is help you get to the fact that if you're growing leafy greens and you're growing a full head of lettuce, you're going to have 2.4 to 2.6 plants per square foot. That's because that's Period. what it's going to take to have a size. <laughs> that, that's it. Like, yeah. it's going to fall in that. And that's if you're growing something more than that, that means you're growing a teen green or something smaller, not a full head lettuce, right? And so when you start to break it down to that, you really do make people feel a little bit more at ease because it's just a number. And that number is vetted by, you know, third parties and land grant institutes that help you to say there's nothing proprietary about that number. Yeah, yeah. Even temperature and humidity set points, right? Lighting levels and DLIs. I mean, we've known a lot of these, especially for veggie crops for a really long time. Yeah. There's nothing special about that. I mean, of course we see, you know, differences a lot of times from growers to growers. Um, but sometimes it's not even, you know, because that's the condition that they want. It's kind of the condition that they're stuck with. And yeah. so they're learning to live within that, but that doesn't necessarily make it proprietary or better than anything else. It's just what they can do. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about tech and I think that's for me kind of where the tech ultimately ends up is if we know that there's nine crop variables that we're trying to control in plant production, the decisions we make in tech determine how much control we have each one of those variables, right? And so we also know that each one of those variables, do, they do not do not live in a bubble. So if we take temperature and we can only control temperature, you know, if this lever, we got a dashboard and there's nine levers on that dashboard and you each one can go zero to a hundred, but our tech now only allows us to go 40 to 60. But, on you know, that might be for the temperature lever, but on the humidity lever, our lever really only allows us to go to five to 10, which means our temperature lever can't really go that much further because they're all inter intertwined, yep. right? Yeah. And, and when we talk about how tech becomes important, it's, okay, how do we free up as much of that lever as possible while keeping plan in balance? How do we share knowledge so that growers understand how much flexibility they have within each one of those levers? So I feel like that was the perfect segue to my final question, which is what do plants crave from technology? Well, what great question. What <laughs> That's you know? all you're going to get. Yeah. <laughs> you're looking at me like, is there more? I mean, no, <laughs> I, I actually, you know, <laughs> I was going to say toilet water. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever they can get. <laughs> right. I mean, if you know that, like, what do plants crave? That's what from the movie Idiocracy. Right. And you got that, it. Thank you for that. knowing the reference. It's amazing how many people don't. <laughs> I love that. I, I saw a meme the other day that said the first time I watched I Idiocracy, I didn't realize it was a, a prophetic yeah. um, um, documentary. Yeah, <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I think Nostradamus might have wrote it in one of his journals. <laughs> <laughs> and I started I started laughing. But what do you know, what do plants want? The funny part is, I believe that oftentimes they don't want what we want them to do as farming. Right. What we're trying to get them to do from far, we want in farming, oftentimes we're creating a stressful scenario for the plant because we want them to produce a flower. We want them to produce a fruit and we want to produce mm -hmm. them as many flowers, as many fruit as possible. And that usually means that we're stressing them out to get them to do those things, right? So what do plants actually want? They they probably want us to leave them alone if they could talk <laughs> and, stop, and stop pushing them, like stop making them run a marathon nonstop. But the reality is, is what do they want is determined by what are the results we're trying to get. And that's, it's more what do we want the plants to do than what do plants want, in my opinion. Until we breed them to, to want what it is that we want them to want. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love it. 
All right. Well, I have um, some bonus rapid fire questions for you. Okay. So, okay. So they're just meant to be quick responses. Of course, if you want to expand on anything, feel free, but they're meant to be, you know, sort of one liners. All right. Are you ready? Yep. All right. Are plants low tech or high tech? Ooh. Mid tech. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll give you mid tech. Um, if you could tell a new grower to do anything, what would it be? Slow down. I like it. Can we feed the world with CEA? No. Okay. Can CEA be a sustainable farming practice? Yes, as long as it's not too too dependent on energy. Okay. Uh you're out fishing. Yep. You catch you catch a fish. What do you like to fish, by the way? My favorite thing is saltwater flats fishing for red salt. Fish. Okay, saltwater flat fishing. You're gonna have to, I don't know, <laughs> make me a meal sometime. <laughs> and speaking of, what is your favorite CEA veggie to pair with your saltwater flat fish? So, so let's say that if I'm saltwater flat fishing, that means I'm gonna go after redfish predominantly here in Texas. And I would say, well, my favorite CEA is always going to be peppers. I'm a huge pepper guy. Really? That's, yeah, that's going to be my favorite one. Okay. And if you find the CEAs that are doing the really spicy varieties, I don't want anything like a, a, a scorpion or a ghost, but like something that's got some heat, you know, you put that with the, yeah, with your fish, that's a good combination to me. That'd be a good combo. Okay. All right. I love it. Well, I look forward to eating with you um, in the future. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> um, well, Chris, thank you so much uh, for for being on the podcast and spending so much time with me today. Lots of topics to discuss yeah. potentially in the future, but it's always fun talking to you about anything. So when am I going to see you next? The next Indoor AgCon maybe? I will definitely be at Indoor AgCon. As you let off the thing, I moderate a lot of panels and it appears that I'm moderating a panel at Indoor AgCon. Okay, <laughs> so, <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, that might be the next time we see each other. Um, unless, I'm trying to think if there's any events in, well, I'll be um, at the, let's say I'll be at Ohio State University in early January, um, working with Dr. Kubota um, nice. in a group at Optimia. And so, yeah, I might pass you on the road somewhere. One, awesome. you know, crossing ways as we go to different greenhouses. Yep, yep. Um, well, and NCERA is here in Davis, so. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I got, I you got can come visit me. Pretty heavily to attend that. <laughs> <laughs> of course. All right, Chris, well, have a great rest of your day. Thanks again. Um, it was fun catching up with you. All right, enjoy. All right, bye. Bye-bye.